This is Athenia, giving voice to the people who make Athens, Georgia, the unique, weird, and wonderful place we call home. My connection to nature has always been through sound. When I think back on the landscapes that shaped me, I think of the chirping of coquis in my grandparents' neighborhood back in Puerto Rico, letting us kids know that it's getting close to dinner time and we should probably head home, or the sound of wild hogs outside my window when my family moved to a neighborhood in South Florida that just so happened to be right next to the Everglades. I guess if someone were to make a mixtape of my life, those would be the songs that would go in there. I once heard someone compare a forest to an orchestra, and I just love that idea that you can go outside, go for a hike, and hear the crescendo or hear the staccato, or sometimes just complete silence, which is just as nice sometimes. This recording was made in my backyard here in Athens, just before dawn. And it made me think, who needs tickets to the Met when you can wake up to a symphony every morning? Today on Athenia, we're talking about nature. Did you know that according to the Environmental Protection Agency, the average American spends 90% of their time indoors? Hopefully, this episode will remind you of the importance of enjoying nature. Hey, maybe even listen to this podcast outside. In this episode, you'll hear evidence from UGA researchers that being outside is beneficial in multiple ways, and tales from some hikers at the Appalachian Trail. Our first story comes from reporter Paul Oshinsky. Georgia is covered in trees, and to most of us, they seem like a fairly normal part of our environment. You drive past them on freeways and roads, walk under them on hikes, you might even just climb one for fun. But hidden in plain sight are complex living organisms that are quietly, yet constantly interacting with each other and their environment in ways similar to humans. According to experts in dendrology, the study of trees, trees can count, learn, and even remember. They can send signals to other trees, react to danger, wrinkle and grow shorter with age, and transfer nutrients to saplings like a nursing mother. I wanted to find out if all this was true, if trees actually weren't so different from us. Well, in the, uh, the, the concept of forestry is I primarily do what is called community forestry and, uh, or urban forestry and arboriculture, and that's the um, tree health care area. That's Dr. Kim Coder, a professor of community forestry and tree biology at the University of Georgia's Warnell School of Forestry. He manages the school's tree healthcare laboratory, where his researchers study the relationship between trees and their environment and innovate new ways to improve how we take care of sick trees. A lot of their research focuses on biologically diverse forests and networks of trees in Georgia and how they've adapted to the ecosystems surrounding them. Well, we have 
um, more than 250 native trees. They go from the top of the mountains to the edge of the ocean. Uh, Georgia is blessed with tremendous tree diversity. And every place you go in Georgia, whether it's a sand hill or a rock outcrop, wherever you go, you're going to find unique trees that are designed uh, for that uh, particular site. One tree species found throughout Georgia, the poplar tree, has recently been examined by forest ecology researchers in the state. These researchers found that poplars release chemical signals either through their root systems or into the air in an effort to warn the trees around them when an insect attack is imminent. If they are attacked by an insect, they will emit a different chemical or a slightly modified different chemical or more of something or less of something. Besides sending each other warning messages, trees possess even more surprising characteristics. German forester Peter Wollebrin, who wrote the novel The Hidden Life of Trees, uses his book to compare trees to humans. One chapter in his book outlines a research finding that trees emit minuscule vibrations when they're cut down. Sounds imperceptible to our human ears, only detectable through precise scientific measuring devices. This research sounds eerily similar to Roald Dahl's 1977 short story, The Sound Machine, where a manic scientist invents a device that can detect the sound of trees and flowers screaming when they're cut down. All right, enough, enough. No more, please, no more. I'm going to tell you something, Mrs. Saunders, something you won't believe. You have this evening cut a basket full of roses. You have with a sharp pair of scissors cut through the stems of living things. And every time you cut the rose, I heard it scream. It was the most terrible sound. You didn't know that, did you, Mrs. Saunders? No, I certainly didn't know that. It happens to be true. I heard them shrieking. Shrieking? Yes, shrieking. Uh, Whom? Whom did you hear shrieking? Roses, I said, the roses. Was Roald Dahl right? Are plants actually shrieking when we cut them down, or break off a branch, or tear off a leaf? Are we murdering trees in cold blood? I had to ask Dr. Coder. Well, some of the uh, electrostatic uh, pain things, sometimes that's the actual, as you cut into living tissue, the interaction with whatever you cut in with is causing a metal-to-metal discharge at the micro level, and so sometimes you can hook it up to, say, a voltmeter or a microvolt, and it will throw out something that people have called screams or something. Uh, It's actually just a biochemical reaction uh, of being damaged, and so it's not a scream because humans do that or animals do that. Uh, It is a reaction. Trees are a living thing, and living cells react to injury, And the oxidation, when they're opened up, inside a cell is filled with electrons. It's electron-dense because photosynthesis is an electron pump. It keeps pumping things inside. And this oxidative environment that we're sitting in, it wants all those electrons. It's trying to oxidize those things. So when you breach the cell, you get this quick oxidation. And um, um, so I, you know, you could call it a scream, I guess. I I would never use that word because it goes back to animal and human systems. And the um, plant system, animal system split so long ago 
that um, to use the same words for both, it's, it really does make a lot of sense. So no, trees aren't emitting sharp screams in the way that Roald Dahl imagined. They don't have vocal cords, or a mouth for that matter. They don't even have a nervous system that can register pain. But the vibrations the tree researchers detected shows how trees react to the environment differently from humans, but in some ways similarly. Just like any other living organism, trees register stimuli and react to the events that occur around them. So trees may be much more similar to us than we previously imagined, but what else do they do for us besides release oxygen and absorb carbon dioxide? Well, quite a lot, actually. Trees release phytoncides, which are airborne chemicals that protect them from insect attacks. When humans breathe in these phytoncides that trees release into the air, our immune system responds by increasing our white blood cell count, sending in more of those cells that protect our bodies against diseases. One study found that spending three days in a forest increased a person's white blood cell count by 30 days. Um, the Japanese have a term uh, about forest bathing. You go out and immerse yourself and walk among trees, gardens, and that calms your heart rate. It makes you feel better. Uh, it's more healthy for you. We have a number of studies with hospitals that people that have a treed environment to look out on uh, recover faster, use less um, uh, pain meds, uh, and, and walk out of that hospital better because of the environment they were able to see. Spending time in a forest can reduce stress, lower your blood pressure, and even improve your mood. But to Coder, trees benefit humans beyond just health. We have um, associations with lower crime rates, um, uh, a number of issues that deal with how humans grow up and live are made better because they're in a treed environment. So are trees actually just like us? Not entirely, but they operate and react in ways that are biologically comparable. They don't yell at their friend when there's danger approaching, but they'll send a nearby tree a chemical signal through their roots when there's a threat. They don't scream in terror like us, but they'll emit vibrations that are reactions to cell damage and tissue breakage. But beyond simply acting like us, they help us out in more ways than we think. Spending time around trees, and even just looking at them, have measurable human health benefits. They literally make us feel better. Trees are complex organisms, and scientists are still just beginning to understand them. But for now, we know that trees are much more communicative, alive, and therapeutic than any of us ever imagined. In our next segment, reporter Cindy Shadricks talks to people who have taken the opportunity to fully immerse themselves in nature. Five million. That's the number of steps an average thru-hiker takes on the Appalachian Trail. Imagine walking 2,200 miles from Georgia to Maine with nothing but your thoughts, your entire life and livelihood in a bag on your back. For Connor Pierce, it's a reality. I left Springer Mountain, Georgia, um, which is the southern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. I left that uh, February 3rd, and then it took me, uh, I just got to the halfway point, Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, today. Big milestone there, and so we're staying the day in Harper's Ferry, and then uh, tomorrow we'll be heading into Maryland. Connor, a 25-year-old, 
turning 26 on the trail this month, grew up in Carrollton, Georgia, only about three hours from the Georgia start point of the trail. He's currently in the process of joining a small and exclusive club, those who have hiked the entirety of the Appalachian Trail. When I hiked, I think I remember it being like two to 3,000 people uh, attempted every year and about wow. 25% succeed. Um, I know that the number of people uh, that attempted every year has grown uh, about 10% mm-hmm. per year, but that success rate has remained pretty constant between 24 and 27%. That's Carter Owens, a University of Georgia graduate who completed the hike himself. We'll hear more from him later. In February, Connor decided to take on the trail completely alone. Was it scary deciding to do it alone? It was horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that, how that felt. It was one of those things where it's like, it's kind of, I hate to even put it like this, but it goes two ways. There's one side of like, total terror and then there's like another side of kind of like like confidence like ooh like I'm doing this like what mm-hmm. like you know you're kind of like ooh like this is cool like I I know what I'm doing is cool but it's also terrifying me and so you kind of have this like dichotomy there where you're like scared but then when you talk to people you're like oh like you know I'm like I'm the through hiker out here you know like yeah. people are people are looking at me and being like dude that's cool and, you know, stuff like that helps. Um, Absolutely. I got rid of the, I don't know, the jitters kind of go away. At this point, about halfway, you know, it's just like, all right, how far are we walking today? Let's do it. You know, there's not there's not so much like a, uh, oh, like, what do I need to do to get, get ready? I got to check this and that. Like, nah, it's just like, right. hey, we're up, let's walk. The hike hasn't been a walk in the park. Three months into his journey, and he's already been met with incredible challenges. Entire month of March, I bet we saw a hundred inches of snow. Like grand total. I mean, it was the craziest thing I've ever done. Like, if I didn't quit through March, I'm not gonna quit. Literally up to my waist. It's been insane. Like in certain snow drifts on ridges and stuff. It was the worst <laughs> thing ever, dude. I'm telling you, it was terrible. Like we had to we had to get off trail a couple days, like five or six days in March. We had to take like full days off because like you literally couldn't see the trail nor could you walk on it However, oh wow i'm sitting here in harper's ferry right now and it's like 82 and sunny connor will spend an average of 165 days on the trail right now in the very middle of one of the most difficult yet exciting times of his life he shared his feelings and thoughts with me so how are you feeling like are you pumped are you tired i'm sure you're feeling like a whole range of emotions yeah uh those emotions sometimes come and go throughout the single day. Like mm-hmm. when it was really cold, man, there, you know, I couldn't have done it. And I bet these other two would say the same about us is like without the little group of three that I had throughout March. Um, I don't know if we would have done it because I mean, there would be days, you know, you wake up and it's like 12 degrees, you know, you got to like get out of your bag, like, put on your hiking clothes and then go walk through snow again for like the Mm -hmm. 30th day in a row. And like that stuff just like breaks you down, man. Like it, it really is really, really tough to like get up and be like, all right, can't wait to do this again. And so what ends up usually happening is like, for instance, I may wake up and be like, God, I don't want to do this. Like this is terrible. And the other guy might not be in the same mood. He'll crack Mm -hmm. a joke. And then next thing you know, we're all on the same page again. 
Um, so there's like this really like shared psychology amongst like trail families, I think, where like if somebody's down, which it happens all the time, you can get down from something back home, you know, you can be like, oh, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't tell my sister I love her enough and that can just eat at you mm-hmm. on the trail, you know, because you're kind of just out there alone. That's all you got is your feet and your mind. And um, so, it, I don't know, it, it, it like comes and goes all the time. Like sometimes you're walking and you're like, man, this is the coolest thing ever. And sometimes you're walking and you're like, man, like what am I doing? Like, I'm just, yeah. I'm just like, walking. why did I do this? <laughs> yeah. Like, why am I out here? I don't even know anymore. And usually it comes full circle. Normally, at the, I've, I've very few times have I gone to sleep being like, man, this sucks. Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, normally there's something that happens. They, they, they say the trail provides, and uh, it, it, so far it has. You realize how much you have? I yeah. know that, I mean, once you carry everything you need on your back for 2,000 miles, you, you come back and you're like, wow, I have all these clothes I never wear, and I have all this crap, you know? So it, I'd say it really kind of helps you to be more aware. So how do you do it? How do you go from living a comfortable life to spending six months with few other people than Mother Nature herself? What did you do to prepare? Like, what goes into preparation for this? Sure. So I guess what I I got into backpacking my sophomore year of college just as a a hobby. And Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd known some people who had hiked the Appalachian Trail, one specifically that I worked with. So I kind of asked her, you know, what did she do? Um, you know, how'd you start? What did you carry? What was it like? And then I I got a book um, called How to Hike the Appalachian Trail or something like that. That's and, pretty uh, straightforward. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> what uh, it, it was full of good and bad advice uh, in retrospect. <laughs> but yeah, I went out. Um, I just read a lot, watched a lot of YouTube videos. There's a lot of, uh, of stuff on YouTube, and I went out. You know, every weekend I could get and. Uh, practiced all what worked and what didn't because you don't really know what questions to ask until you get mm-hmm. out there right I mean right. we're so accustomed to striving down the street and picking up some food or you know um, turning on a faucet and getting water and it's really hard to wrap your mind around um, surviving in the woods without that stuff so yeah. it was really just kind of trial and error seeing what worked and seeing what didn't and taking that with me Even with all the preparation, the gear, the plan A's, B's, and even sometimes C's, the ups and downs and the successes and the defeats, it's the journey of a lifetime. And according to Connor, it's as simple as this, putting one foot in front of the other. You're living it right now. So what would your advice be to someone who wants to do this one day? For someone who's thinking about doing it, all you've got to do is walk. All you have to do is walk and stay positive. Um, everything else, rain goes away, snow goes away, the sun goes down, the sun comes up, everything's, everything works out. All you have to do is keep your, keep your mind screwed in tight, and you'll be fine. If it's something you really want to do, uh, the only thing stopping you is you. For more information about the Appalachian Trail, visit www.appalachiantrail.org. Thanks to Nick Mouse for our theme music. Our team includes Jenny Alpaw, Lauren Baggett, Nina Guzman, Robin McIntyre, Paul Oshinsky, Sydney Shadricks, Jake Troyer, and Alex Vanden 
And don't forget to subscribe to Athenia on Apple Podcasts so you never miss a new episode. This has been Athenia. Thanks for listening.